Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah show kicks off this hour. Joining me? My co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening, Noah. Do you want to do something a little different here off the top? Mm, maybe. Maybe. I'm, I'm springing this on him for the audience. He has no idea what's coming. I'm just going to lead us right into it. Um, I was thinking about things to be thankful for. Uh, not because the American Thanksgiving is coming up, but you know, when when you go through tough patches or when when... Things kind of seem gloomy. One of the things you can do to kind of help yourself along is put things in perspective. And part of doing that is realizing what things you have to be thankful for. Hmm. So I was I was thinking about working at Red Hat. And just like every other corporation, there are ups and downs to, to working at Red Hat. But I am generally thankful for my employer and my position at Red Hat and how... Um, they, they're they really pretty good to us. On the whole, they have been really good to their employees. And like I said, it's a big corporation, so you're going to get the spectrum out there. Mm-hmm. But I was thinking about, I get all of these kind of like, hey, come and join us. We're, we're recruiting kind of emails um, just because I happen to have some buzzword bingo in my profile. And so I get all these kind of unsolicited things. And I think, you know what? My life would probably be worse if I left Red Hat. So I'm thankful for my job at Red Hat. That's very cool, Steve. I like it. You want to get into some feedback? Sure. Let's go ahead. All right. Our first email comes in from Charlie. Charlie writes in and says, Good day. In the feedback for the gent that wanted to transfer files with his mate in uh, infrequently, first, format the hard drive as EXT FAT. Uh, EXT FAT works well with... Uh, I lost my train of thought here. EXT wor- works well with Linux, Mac, and Windows. Created VPN server between his home and the other home of the server and his friend that wants remote access to the files on the hard drive. You can use OpenVPN or WireGuard. FTP or SFTP via the VPN, you could actually handle the FTP inside of a VPN connection. You can try using GFTP instead of FileZilla. See if it's in the FTP client. When the timeout settings, not the FTP server, the timeout settings. Another option is to turn the USB hard drive into a Freedom Box and add VPN access to the Freedom Box. He links to freedombox.org and freedom, uh, freedomboxfoundation.org. You can learn more, and of course, we'll have links for you to all of those resources in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. So, uh, have you ever heard of a Freedom Box, Steve? Absolutely. Uh, that was part of the reason I chucked it in here. I thought that one and the idea of changing the FTP client because... So as a refresher, we have uh, a listener that wrote in and was saying, hey, I've set up this SFTP, well, FTPS server, and mm-hmm. every two minutes it breaks its connection and then it'll eventually reconnect and pick up. So the idea of changing the FTP client, I thought that was worthwhile mentioning too. 
Um, I hadn't thought yeah. of that. That makes some sense. I hadn't heard of the Freedom Box until Charlie wrote in. Um, but essentially, it's a tiny little, looks like basically a Raspberry Pi, but a little device that you can buy for 70 euros. And the idea here is it's a little private server for non-experts, and it lets you install and configure server applications with just a couple of clicks. Runs on cheap hardware of your choice and can use an internet connection and power, and of course, is completely under your control because you own it. Um, so you can learn more at freedombox.org. You can buy one of their boxes there. Again, they're like 70 euros, I think. Yeah, 70 euros. They have a... A UK one, a US one, and I don't know what HSK is. I think that's Hong Kong. Okay. So check it out. Well, again, links for you for all of the references are in the show notes. You can find those at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Our second email comes in from Jeremy. Jeremy writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. In the last show, Steve mentioned that fast, or well, Stephen, Stefan rather. What? Did you talk about fast mail? Yes, we did. We talked about uh, we talked about Bitwarden integrating with Fastmail so that it generates so Bitwarden can now generate email aliases with Fastmail. Hmm. In the last show, Steve mentioned that Fastmail provides integration into Bitwarden. I wanted to note that you can also do this with ProtonMail since ProtonMail acquired Simple Login, and he links to SimpleLogin.io. All you need to do is go to Simple Login, create login with Proton, and then your Proton account and simply log in, they're linked. At this point, anytime you generate a simple login alias, it will automatically forward to your Proton mail account. You can go one step further and integrate it with Bitwarden by generating an API on your simple login account and adding it to Bitwarden. Happy to provide you step-by-step guide with pictures if that would be of any use. Thanks for the show, Jeremy. You know what I would tell you, Jeremy? I would tell you, if you go to docs.mindripmedia.com, you'll notice that there is a, uh, a an MKDocs site up. Now, if you were to go write that uh, doc up in some sort of a markdown file and put that as a Git pull request on our GitLab, and I believe contributing is one of the articles. It is. So if you go to docs.mindripmedia.com, media.com slash contributing it'll walk you through how to install all of the things that you need and then you it'll link you to the uh, mindrip media repository and if you wanted to write that up it would we would publish it and then we would be able to share that resource with other people so it'd be hugely appreciated thanks for writing in the show i appreciate it uh steve your thoughts on simple login have you used simple login and is this something of use to you I haven't, although I thought this is something um, that I might take a look into. Right now, I have a uh, I have a business Proton so that I can host my own domain and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. with that, um, because it's my own domain, I just I have it set so that any I basically can create mailboxes on the fly. So I already I already kind of do this, but I like the idea of of being able to generate throwaways. I. I like having something that is not gibberish. So like a, an email alias on an API is likely to not give you an indication of where the mail came from. Like it might be some random string at, you know, protonmail.com or whatever it is. Right. Whereas what I do is I actually will create a mailbox on the fly for, for example, I bought a Visa gift card online. So I made one called Visa at mydomain.com mm-hmm. so that I know if, I end up getting spam on that email where it came from. Absolutely. Um, I want to take a, 
a moment to mention, if you've got questions, there's a number of ways that you can get them in front of our faces. The first is you can send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. That's kind of the traditional way. And we don't, we haven't done this in the past live, but the reason that the email is live at asknoahshow.com is so that you can ask your questions during the show. They'll pop up in front of our face. And so as we continue to get our bots and all of the back end stuff kind of situated uh, to where it can put some of the stuff in front of our face, we're going to invite you to do more of that. So that's one way you can get in front. Of course, we invite your calls at 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. You can call in. Now that has to be during the show because it has to be live, but we record every Tuesday from six to seven central. So if you can join us during that time, ask your questions live. That's really the best way because we have the opportunity to dig into a discussion and talk about what your issue is get a little bit more information you'll get a better answer that way so that would be my that would be the the number one way i would recommend that you interact with us you can also ask your questions via mumble so if you're a nerd and you're sitting in front of your computer and thinking to yourself why would i call noah and steve on the phone like an animal you don't have to you can use mumble and we've got it really dialed in at this point so you can learn more at at, uh, at docs.mindripmedia.com slash mumble. That'll actually give you a guide on exactly how to set your mumble client up. So even if you've not used mumble before, it's an open source voice client, very simple, very easy to set up, very straightforward. The guide will walk you right through that. Once you're in mumble, you can also join us in our chat room at geeklab.ninja. You can sign up for an account right through the web UI if you want to do that. Or if you are already in the matrix universe, you can just join pound Ask Noah show colon Linux Delta.com. That'll drop you into the same room. And if you use the, uh, the keyword pound mumble, and then your question, it will put a message in front of our face saying, Hey, so-and-so would like to join the mumble queue and we'll bring you in. And the advantage of using mumble over the phone is the audio is going to sound much better. And so I'll, I'll, I'll say hello to our, our mumble room. We've got a whole bunch of people in there. How are you, how are you guys doing? Oh, I'm in the wrong thing, so I, they'd all have to come in here. So, but two bit, you can say hello. He's playing shy. So, now they moved back out. So, somebody can jump in and say hello if you want. But hello, how's it going? Hi. Hey. Um, so, you guys can jump in. They listen to the show. You're welcome to do that too. But then you're also welcome to tag us with pound mumble, and it'll draw our attention to the fact that you want to make a comment and join the conversation. We would invite you to do that. Our third email comes in from Kevin. Kevin writes in and says, hey, guys, what do you recommend for a Google Voice replacement? I currently have my business phone number in Google Voice, but I'm working on de-Googling my life. Thanks, Kevin. So, Steve, I know this is something you did when you came into the United States. You moved to an IP-based system. Can you talk about what you're using and do you like it? So I moved from... Just a traditional like cell phone carrier so that I could keep my Canadian cell phone number. Um, so I went with Flow Route and 3CX, so the combination of the two. I won't get into why, but you need both of those um, for calling and texting if you're going to go that route. Uh, it worked pretty well, honestly. There were some problems with if you're on the VPN or... Um, something gets flagged funny. There were times where the 3CX app would not connect because of reasons. But on the whole, I found that it worked just fine. And uh, yeah, I have no complaints. But Google Voice is not a, a thing in most of the world. So I don't have any specific um, experience with, with Google, Google Voice and 
any other kind of comparison, right? It's one of the mm-hmm. things that you deal with when you're moving between providers is you have this comparison because you've been with X for so many years. And so when you move to a new service, you're looking at it through the lens of, well, it doesn't do this or this does it differently. So I don't really have any kind of comparison. I went from having nothing to to moving to 3CX and I have no real complaints. I have used Google Voice. In fact, it was my main way of dealing with um, I guess voice calls for a long time. And really what I liked about it was you could have one DID, one phone number. When people called, depending on who called, it would route the call to different destinations. So when I would buy a new phone, I would add it as a Google Voice destination. And then those calls would come into my cell phone. If I got a new phone, I didn't have to give out a new phone number. All I had to do was uh, look at, just sign into my Google Voice account and add it as a, a, a destination. Um, so, so that was where I kind of started. When I went to get rid of Google, I actually found it kind of problematic. Both my wife and I were using Google Voice for our numbers and that ability to direct calls and kind of route calls uh, and text messages kind of fell by the wayside when we went to look at replacements. One of the things that we were looking for was a open source solution end-to-end. And the other thing was a company that I could work with when things didn't work or got into trouble. And so for the trunk provider, we've gone with Vox Telesis. And if you've listened to this program for any amount of time, then you know they're great friends of the program and have helped a lot of listeners and a lot of businesses out. Mike Jennings and his team does a fantastic job. They run the entire company on Linux and open source software, top to bottom. They've got data centers in Utah and here in the Dakotas. And when you need a human being, you pick up the phone and you call Mike or his team and somebody from their support team will answer the phone and walk you through fixing a problem or troubleshooting an issue. And of course, because they're geeks and nerds on the back end, they're not scared when you say, I need an API to do this or I need this to call out to that. Or is there any way to build this thing to make it do this? They're the kind of people that will look, and if they can apply it to more than one customer, they'll do it for you. Otherwise, they'll connect you with the resources you would need to make that happen. Um, And so we use them for, that's who does the, they provide the trunk service for the show. So if you call into the show, you're using Vox Telesis, and then it's obviously what we use at AltaSpeed and uh, and what I personally use. Then for the client side, I... uh, I have I've 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 kind of gone two routes. So for voice, I use like Steve 3CX and have all the calls come in there. For SMS, I'm doing something a little different. I use a service called JMP.chat. JMP.chat is nice because it for two dollars a month you can per three dollars a month rather you can purchase a phone number. And they just expose the entire endpoint over XMPP. So you can do whatever you want with it. You can forward the calls to another SIP number, which is what I do so I can get my voice calls that way, or you can connect the calls or the text messages over to Matrix, uh, which is what I've done. And so when I get a text message, it comes in and that person becomes just a Matrix user to me. It's their phone number at Cheogram or colon Cheogram, I guess, dot com. And I can text that person as if they were a a, a normal matrix user, but they just show up. And so in this way, I get all of my work communication, all of our team communication for Asno and MindDrip Media and anybody that texts that I just, I can't get them onto another platform. I give them a phone number, they text. And as far as they know, I'm, I'm just another person on the back end of a phone. The difference is when I get a new phone or when I get, I don't even have to have a phone. I can do it off of my laptop. I can do it off of my cell phone. doesn't matter. Anywhere I sign into my messaging service, get my communication app up, 
every everybody that that text comes in there. And so highly recommend jmp.chat, even if you didn't want to tie it to Matrix. They have, uh, I believe it's Snickernet, is, they'll set up a dedicated instance for you where you can receive your messages. They have a decent web UI based on XMPP, so it's essentially a web-based XMPP client. And there's also really great uh, Linux XMPP clients as well. One of my favorites is Gajim, G-A-J-I-M, and functions very much like a traditional instant messenger, but allows you to send, receive, and participate in SMS conversations Again, when you tie it to a JMP account. So that's what I would I would encourage you to check out. Uh, check out 3CX, check out FlowRoute, check out Voxtelesis, and check out uh, JMP. Our fourth email comes in from H. H writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. On the last episode, you mentioned Remina. So I wanted to warn you of something I found. I also use it until just recently when I noticed a disturbing security issue. And I don't see it noted anywhere. If you're using Remina in full screen mode with the grab all keyboard events option enabled on your computer and the laptop goes to suspend or you close the lid, there is a chance your computer will not lock. Instead, it just suspends and comes back straight into the desktop displaying Remina and a GNOME message at the top of the screen stating unable to lock. The lock was blocked by an application. I go through a lot of trouble to make sure my device is secure in case it's lost or stolen, including full disk encryption. But this means this means nothing if I ever forget to exit Remina before closing my laptop, where just anybody can open my laptop and have at it. The only reference I can find to this is an old bug from 2016 with no resolution, and he links to the Bugzilla Red Hat. The truth is, I don't know what the cause of this is. And that report, it talks about virtual machines also causing it. This might be a GNOME thing or a systemd thing, as in the syslog, both messages show about being blocked by an application. I've tried this on Ubuntu 22.04, Pop! OS, Kubuntu, on an XPS 13, MacBook Pro 2015, Intel NUC, and Dell T470S. They all do the same thing. For now, I've switched to using X-Free RDP on the CLI. It does not have this issue. And as a side note, it gives me better multi-monitor support, allowing me to select what screens I want to use for the session. Anyway, this is a very disturbing thing to find. So maybe there is something that you know that could help prevent anything from blocking my laptop's ability to lock in the future. Kind regards, H. So there's there's a couple of things I want to touch on in here. So first of all, you're right. That is, it's, it's unfortunate that that happens. I would tell you that is not specific to Remina. There are a number. So you mentioned VMs. And so certainly if you're running something like Vert Manager and have, you know, keyboard uh, grab enabled and it's in full screen, a lot of those applications that do that, it takes over what would be the screensaver. And so if you shut the computer, or open it back up, it drops you back into wherever it was you last left off. I would tell you this just from a security standpoint. If the argument is, well, if I can shut my laptop, it is secure. And if I open the laptop, it is, and I have full disk encryption and I open the laptop and it then, you know, and it doesn't lock, that's insecure. I would tell you that's mostly true, but there's a little bit of a twist there. And the twist is this hard full disk encryption is only effective when the computer is powered off. When the computer is powered on, even if the screen is locked, the key is loaded into memory. And so an attacker with even some basic understanding of how to dump a, a machine's memory is going to be able to do that. And, an, and a motivated attacker that has special equipment can actually spray the RAM chips 
uh, with uh, like an upside-down aerosol can and cool them, and that will actually preserve the data in, in the chip for up to a minute or two when it's disconnected from power, and they can insert it into a device and dump the memory that way. Um, but there's all sorts of ways to do that. Uh, and so I, I would generally tell you if your data is that important or that secure, I would power the laptop off if you're not in possession of it to take advantage of full disk encryption. And if it's running, I wouldn't count on full disk encryption saving you. I get it. It lowers the threat risk, right? Because if somebody can just open the lid, they're in. That's it. There is no compromise or anything needed. You just got into the computer because it was essentially like the door is wide open versus at least if the lid is closed, they've got to get past that screen locker or at least try to. And if they can't, then they have to resort to some sort of intrusive method. So I get what you're saying, but I I would just add that to kind of color the, the, the security perspective there. Um, as far as using XRD or FreeRDP, that's what you use, Steve, isn't it? Yep. And you're happy with it works? Yeah. I mean, it doesn't give you the nice fancy uh, buttons that, that Remina does, but it works just fine. So, yeah, I, I thank you for bringing it to my attention. So far as I know, they still haven't found anybody to take over the Remina project. So maybe this is something that the next person or next group that takes over. By the way, if you didn't catch last week's episode, uh, we tried to draw some attention to Remina because the project, the people that are in charge of the project right now are kind of tapering off their ability to uh, to jump in and 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 deal with some of the ongoing issues. And so if there is somebody that is interested in being a project maintainer, uh, reach out to Remina or send me an email live at com, and I will get you connected. So there's uh, one of the other ways that you could tackle this. So he, he specifically asked, or they, sorry, H, I don't know your gender, but uh, <laughs> they specifically ask, um, you know, what kind of things could, could I do to help, to help make sure that this doesn't happen? So if you're running a distribution that has systemd, systemd has both pre and post hooks for most things, including suspend. So you could run a script that, for example, locks the computer. So the while Remina and other uh, things like VMs might prevent the auto locking, Mm -hmm. it might not prevent a specific lock. But if you're only if you have targeted things that you have identified are problematic, such as Vert Manager or Remina, you could have your script actually run and just close those. Like yeah, those hey, that's an idea. You have it look. Yeah. You look for anything that has Remina in the process and then kill it. Yep. So and that's non intrusive to the thing that you're connecting to. That's mm-hmm. just going to break your session. So um, those sorts of things can be done. Uh, I believe you're looking in Lib System D System Sleep. Um, and you put a script in there, uh, and you make sure that your case has pre and post. There's there's lots of places on the internet that will help you with this. So if you just look for you know like Linux and script on resume or suspend, you'll find lots of way like lots of people out there talking about this, and and the correct way is out there. Awesome! That's that's a fantastic idea, Steve. Well, that's what I would do. I work around problems though. <laughs> so. Hey. 855 450 no it's 855-450-6624 the email live at asknoahshow.com tiny joins us via mumble welcome in sir hey noah how's it going doing great how can we help i had a question about network cards but uh could i piggyback on the last topic really quick sure most i know kde supports it but there are keyboard shortcuts for locking your desktop 
Mm-hmm. So if you do that before you shut the lid, that should make sure that the screen is locked. So I tell you what, um, while you're asking your, oh no, I don't have, okay, that's not configured. All right, yeah, yeah, no, that's a great idea. Yeah, I, 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 I question. So is the auto lock different from a manually uh, initiated lock? It is. So thing there, the system will prevent automatic things like, for example, your screen going to sleep, mm. but you can use the, the keyboard controls to put the screen to sleep anyways. Okay. So uh, I'm not 100%. You'd have to try the lock command to make sure that it actually does what you think it will do. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that ultimately you have to remember to do a thing and that's that's not impossible like Tiny is alluding to. Mm-hmm. But if you if you automate it, then you probably don't have to think about it again. Uh, Tiny, you had a, 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 a second question. Yes. Uh, I am looking at buying an SFP plus networking card, and I'm wondering if it would be better to buy a new Intel X520 without RDMA or an older Chelsea or Mellanox Connect X3 with RDMA. And this would be for a hypervisor in a home lab. Okay. Steve, what are your thoughts? So I guess it depends on uh, you would need to look up your support because the older the older Mellanox cards are still supported. But I have noticed that some support from some older cards is being dropped off for various reasons in the newer uh, in the newer distributions. So it's one of those things that you might have to compile the driver. So I guess it that would be the first thing that I would take a look at. Um, I don't have any particular, hmm, I don't have any particular need for RDMA, so I haven't really dug into, dug into that. It's one of those things where my client might make the call like, Hey, we need this or we don't need this, but in a home lab, like, I don't know, I'm just running 10 gig ethernet and calling it. (laughs) So it sounds like there's no, like really obvious benefit but there could be some hassle with it especially if i'm running like fedora where it will have a newer kernel so it's more or less likely to have the driver in it yeah so there is benefit to rdma but again will you see it as a home lab maybe it depends on how much stress you're putting like the whole purpose of the rdma is to have uh, direct access to the memory so that you're bypassing the cpu because normally what happens is there, the CPU is involved in transiting uh, information in and out of out of the memory via one or the other buses that it, that it is attached to. So, like in a in a multi core or multi CPU um, situation, you'll have RAM that are kind of handled by CPU one and RAM that is handled by CPU zero. And you know that this gets into like architecting of, of very specific types of loads. Like that's really useful for things like databases and stuff like that because you can actually you can actually design it such that this the ram that is closest to C- the cpu that your thread is running on is the ram that it's going to store stuff in and then you're talking about um really high performance kind of demands i'm not sure i can't speak to what you will get value out of i i kind of tinkered around with that and went this was a lot of work for nothing because I don't run tons and tons of things. So, um, you know, your mileage may vary. So it sounds like if my CP, my single socket CPU system isn't sweating that much, RDMA isn't worth the hassle. No, nope. Not, not in my estimation. How about I put it that way? (laughs) 
That is fair. Thanks for the help. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for thanks for jumping in via Mumble. Again, you can join Mumble. It is pound Mumble. Uh, or excuse me, mumble.mindripmedia.com, or you can uh, ping our attention with pound Mumble in the Geek Lab. Our pick of the week this week is the portable record player. So they're calling it the Soundburger, and this is actually Audio-Technica's second attempt uh, at this. So according to the RIAA, uh, last year, the 2022 report, or rather this year, uh, they released and said, when vinyl revenue surpassed CD revenue, a state of affairs we haven't seen since 1986, according to the RIAA. The RIAA reported that vinyl revenue grew 22% in the first half of this year to $570 million, outpacing CDs at $200 million and representing physical music's largest revenue share. Now, here's the thing. I would tell you that this is a bit of disingenuous, isn't it? Because it implies that vinyl is just kind of taking over and if people wanted to go buy music that's where they buy it is they buy it on vinyl and i don't think that's accurate it's probably accurate that people who want physical media see a benefit in going out and buying a physical record and people that want digital media don't see any benefit in buying a cd and then ripping it and then listening to it because they're likely not carrying around a cd player right so if you're buying physical media i can see why you would buy a record but don't kid yourself the vast majority of people that are buying music are either streaming it or they're buying digital copies. Now, that's problematic because the bit rate is like in the hundreds of kilobits, whereas CDs are in the 2000s of kilobits. So you're getting a better product. We just stopped caring. I digress. The Japanese audio brand Audio-Technica has seemingly taken note of this trend and released, re-released rather, what they're calling the Soundburger Portable Record Player. And this product is one of several that the company is releasing to celebrate its 60th birthday. It's based on a plate on the player's side, and the company is producing just 7,000 units. So they first made these back in 1980. So the original audio burger, known as the AT727, was a way for people to listen to their 33 and a third or 45 vinyl records outside of their houses. They could take this little portable record player. They could load the uh, the the record into it. And if you've ever seen one of those little pe- like Presto pizza oven things where the oven is just like one section and then the plate spins around and goes inside of the little pizza oven, that's kind of how this device works. So they've re-released this and the new sound burger known as the ATSB 2022 looks a lot like the old one, but Audio-Technica added some really cool 2022 features like Bluetooth 5.2 support. And so you can listen to your vinyl records through wireless headphones. There's also a 3.5 millimeter jack instead of the RCA outputs, but they include an RCA adapter. So if you do want to plug it into a stereo, you can absolutely do that. The 2022 Soundburger is selling for about $200. And so I bring it to your attention for a couple of reasons. One is if you're like me and you like local media, this is kind of a cool thing. Nobody can take this away from you. Once you have it, you can play media forever. Also, because of this weird cult slash uh, you know, hippie phase thing that we're going through where every artist is releasing stuff on vinyl, you actually have a reasonable opportunity to go purchase vinyl records and play them. Uh, so the Soundburger from Audio-Technica, again, we'll have links for you in the show notes. You'll find those at podcast.asknoahshow.com. From the Linux Newswire Newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. Red Hat has been collaborating closely with the Podman community on the development and delivery of the Podman desktop, a new tool designed to help developers more easily interact with containers and pods running in Podman. Tails 5.6 is out with fixes for the latest Wi-Fi vulnerabilities and Tor Browser 11.5.5.
The Linux kernel 5.19 has reached end of life, and users are urged to upgrade to Linux kernel 6.0. Also, Intel has begun sending in their graphics driver changes for the Linux 6.2 kernel. Plasma 5.26.2 has disabled its animated wallpaper feature on X11 due to a severe memory leak. Proton Glorious Egg Roll is a community fork of Valve's Proton that has added patches for AMD's FSR technology and better NVIDIA CUDA support. Lenart Pottering has proposed moving the Linux boot process into a brave new trusted boot world of cryptographically signed unified kernel images. And lastly, Rakuten Mobile, a Japanese telecommunications provider, has come out and stated that it's replacing Red Hat as its Linux OS supplier and switching to CIQ's Rocky Linux which Rakuten's CEO claims is true open source after being disappointed with Red Hat's product support and billing decisions. Thank you, JT. You'll hear his newscast uh, halfway through. The episode is kind of where we try to place it. It's a nice brief overview. Elon Musk has taken control of Twitter and he's ousted the CEO, chief financial officer and the company's top lawyer. A few hours later, Musk tweeted, the bird has been freed, a reference to, of course, Twitter's logo. Now, the departure came just hours after a deadline set by a Delaware judge to finalize the deal on Friday. She threatened to schedule a trial if no agreement was reached. Although they came to it quickly, the major personnel move were widely expected and almost certainly the first of many major changes that uh, Elon Musk is going to make. So, the... One of the things I really like about Elon Musk is he is a man who sees a problem and then he fixes it. Why aren't we going to space? I'll go to space. He goes to space. I disagree with the with his comfortability in using federal funds and subsidizing his businesses. But at the same time, I can very much appreciate the way that he sets a goal and gets something done. And I can resonate. Or I resonate with Elon Musk's ability and willingness to put his own neck on the line for what he believes in. And so when they asked him, why did you do this? Why spend $44 billion or somewhere in that neighborhood to acquire Twitter? What's the reason? Quote, the reason I acquired Twitter is because it is important to the future of civilization to have a common digital town square where a wide range of beliefs can be debated in a healthy manner without resorting to violence. There is currently a great danger that social media will splinter into far right and far left echo chambers that generate more hate and divide our society. So here's here's kind of how that breaks down for me. When I think about that, I start to think, well, what happens when somebody says something that's offensive or disagreeable on a social media platform? We take those people off. What's the next thing that happens? They go to somewhere else where where other people that are like minded or think like them can tolerate their views. What you're left with is a silo of the other people who disagree with these views. So now you have these two people that hold very different views or very different worldviews or very different beliefs, and they're not interacting with each other because they find each other offensive. They find each other intolerable. And what I read when I take Elon Musk's statement is that if we can't figure that out on an online platform where literally all you have to do is click a button, to get rid of the message, to make it vanish from your screen, to go back to real life and function. If we can't get that right, the chances that we are going to be able to interact with each other on a very real level and negotiate far bigger problems with far larger consequences is going to be even more difficult. The EU took a look at this and they <laughs> here was their response. We're watching you. 
that's the EU's answer to private businesses. Do what we want you to do. And so my question back would be, so what happens when Elon says, fine, Twitter just won't serve the EU? Then what? Because they're a U.S.-based company. And I have a strong suspicion that Elon Musk cares very little about what's socially appropriate. In fact, he's likely to be very concerned with letting people freely express themselves because, again, that seems to be his motivation for buying Twitter in the first place. Now, Steve, I know you're not typically somebody who spends a lot of time on Twitter, but what do you think about this decision? I think that it's very interesting. I've been enjoying watching people on all sides kind of melting down about this. Right. Um, because my answer to things like, okay, I don't mean to make light of, of people's trials, but like online bullying is just turn off the computer. Right. right? You're one button away, right? And and I understand that it's it can be damaging to people's um, psyche mm-hmm. when they haven't learned those that level of coping skills. Like when you're... When you're focused on this reality, like this is what you think is the most important thing, mm-hmm. and you're being smeared there, um, it's it's kind of like in the old days when people would go to church and then somebody at the church has decided that you're no good and they kind of spread it around. You just don't go to church then, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. and that is a little harder to deal with than turning off Twitter or whatever. But I guess my point is that... Um, <clears throat> I understand that there are people that that are having a hard time coping with various aspects of this, um, and that I not don't mean to take light of. But at the same time, like both sides are like, hey, it's the coming of the Messiah, and the other side is like, it's the devil incarnate, and everything's going to implode. And uh, just as an aside, I finished reading the Babylon Bee's Guide to Democracy, mm-hmm. which is a great book, by the way. It's hilarious. Um, and how this applies here when they when they're talking about how you know whether fraud has happened did your side win no it was the most fair and equal election ever did your side lose it's fraudulent and it's the worst election in the history of the world and that's what's happening with twitter and musk it's mm-hmm. like the you know how i i think this is a positive thing i have long thought that there are suspicious uh Suspicious activities, and I, I mean, it's just like when something happens in public and you're like, hmm, this doesn't all seem to add up, mm-hmm. but I can't quite put my finger on why. Uh, I think that if he maintains the level of transparency he says he's going to have, there's nothing but good that will come out of it, at least from the standpoint of, you know, one side or the other will be proven right or wrong, like Maybe there are some bio, like some really big um, biases inside of the algorithm, or maybe they're not. Mm-hmm. And if there aren't, then you know what? That was a giant nothing burger. And if there are, then, hey, at least we can shine a light on it and say, well, now we can get to business fixing this. He's already started to get to business and fixing a lot of things, right? So one of the things he, di- he, he did very early on in this, in fact, talking about right now, is so th- one of the things that they they're doing is looking at different ways to fund Twitter. So they want to take the control away from large corporations. If you're a large corporation and you feel like it's a brand risk for you to support a company that supports something else. Now you're three levels deep in 
content policing, right? This is not what Section 230 was set up for. Section 230 is specifically designed to have the individual take the responsibility for whatever they post on the platform. And the platform is just there to be the platform. They should not and do not have a requirement to police inside. And so if you're an advertiser, that's problematic because if the platform can't remove things that people find offensive, then people say, well, you're supporting the platform and the platform supporting this person. And I don't like this person. So therefore, I don't like you. And that's problematic for advertisers. And so what Twitter is looking at now is going to things like a monthly $20 charge if you need a little blue check mark to prove that you're who you are. Now, here's the deal. If there's anybody out there that needs to have a verified account because they're a big enough deal, I'm thinking they can afford the 20 bucks a month. You know, well, let me let me just stop you right there and say it's actually eight, according to uh, Elon's own Twitter that okay. he posted like today. Well, something. the point yeah, still stands though. Six right? hours ago, the point still stands though. If you if yeah. they if you what have what have we do? think about what we've done there? What we've done is we've taken the monetary model for Twitter and placed it where in the hands of the people that use them. So Twitter is beholden to whom? The people who use it and. Prominent people who are on the platform, if they're paying their $8 a month, then they're the ones that are, in part, financing their ability to work on Twitter. So I think that's a better model than trying to go uh, the advertisement route and letting corporations have control over it. I, It's too early to tell how this is going to play out, right? Because it's easy right now to say, oh, there's freedom of speech and we'll have it'll be the, the digital public town square. First of all. I don't hear anybody asking for a digital town square. Second of all, if you're, it's, he doesn't sound like he's going to stop there. He wants to make it into some larger platform with a whole bunch of other things. Again, a thing that I've not heard anybody asking for. And three, and you, you, if you're listening to the show, you listen for this kind of perspective, right? It's not open source. It doesn't conform to the activity pub standard. So all of the great things that are happening in the social media world from the standpoint of decentralization... And the ability to have multiple platforms talk together and the fact that we had Diaspora and now we have Mastodon and, you know, I, I believe Donald Trump is what is a truth.social. He actually forked Mastodon and turned it into his own social media platform. So there's all of these products and services that are popping up around this idea of ActivityPub. If Twitter doesn't support ActivityPub, it's again, it's kind of off in its own thing. So is it kind of cool that it's owned by a fairly techie guy who has some new and creative ideas? Yeah. Is it a good thing that we're starting to treat the too much free speech by putting more free speech in? Yes, I think that's a good idea. I think that's the best way to handle free speech. Give people enough rope. And one of two things will happen. I'm saying this metaphorically. They will either climb somewhere with the rope, in which case you have to admit you were wrong. They presented a better argument. They presented a better side or they hang themselves and everybody can watch and say, well, that person just made an idiot out of him or herself. Look at what they did. You don't need to say anything. All you have to do is let that conversation take place. Don't ban them. Don't remove them. Don't mute them. Don't shadow ban them. Let them climb somewhere or let them hang themselves. Again, metaphorically speaking. So uh, we'll see. It's like I say, it's too early to tell. But I'm really excited about this. I think it's pretty darn cool. Um, we'll just kind of drive by this. There was, an op there was a security vulnerability in OpenSSL. It, uh, it was originally signaled as a critical level patch. But 
after a little bit of looking and a little bit of digging, ultimately it arrived as a high security fix for a buffer overflow, one that affects OpenSSL 3.x installations, but it's unlikely to lead to any sort of remote code execution. OpenXSL 3.0.7 was announced last week as a critical security fix release. The specific vulnerabilities, which are now tracked under CVE 2022-37786 and 2022-3602, have been largely unknown until today. But the analysis and businesses in the web security field hinted that there could be notable problems and a maintenance pain. Some Linux distributions, including Fedora, held up releases until the patch was available. And distribution giant Akami noted before... The patch of half of their monitored networks had at least one machine with a vulnerable OpenSSL 3.0 instance, and among those were networks were uh, 0.2 and 33% of machines were vulnerable. And so essentially, two buffer overflows uh, in Unicode, decoded functions, a malicious email address verified within an X509 certificate could overflow bytes on a stack, resulting in a crash or potentially remote uh, code execution depending on the platform's configuration. Although I would add, in digging a little bit further, what I when, when they say, depending on the platform's configuration, it would appear that the way that most Linux boxes are set up, they're not vulnerable to this. So not a huge thing, not anything you got to get. I mean, stay up to date, which you should be doing anyway. Um, not anything to, to, to you know, fall over, but make sure you're staying up to date. Make sure you're staying uh, away from uh, 3.0 or 3.06. Make sure you're upgraded to at least 3.0.7 as soon as possible. Package should be available in your distro. Um. Steve, I want to talk a little bit about your Steam Deck. So you got it, you have been playing with it, and it's of particular interest to me, your use case, because you treat gaming about how I treat gaming, which is, I can't, I have a difficult time relating to people that, like, that's what they do, that's their form of entertainment. I can't just sit and play games constantly. Every once in a while, though, it can be kind of fun to unwind. Because it's a part-time activity for me, I can never really justify spending thousands of dollars on a really nice gaming machine. So the Steam Deck appeals to me because it's an ability to have a thing. It's available much like a Nintendo or uh, you know a, a console game, but I can play uh, Steam games on it as well as do some Linuxy stuff. You have yours. What do you think? I have been very impressed with this. Um, I kind of asked Noah whether we could kind of chat about this because I have a large Steam library and I have a decent computer and I enjoy playing games. But as I've uh, progressed through different stages of life and I've got ten, kids who are 10 and 6, uh, that that changes the ability to connect with, with your spouse because you're dealing with kids stuff all the time. So we bought Steam decks, my wife and I, in order to connect more with each other because we both like playing games and I've been really impressed with it. I think that they did a, a really good job with just the seamlessness of it from, from a long time Linux gamer going back to uh, world of goo. I bought world of goo as the first big commercially available game for Linux back before steam on Linux was a thing. So I've been, and then before that was hacking away on wine one of the things that I liked about it is you don't know that you are using Linux from from the Steam perspective. You just go and you select your game and you hit play. Like on, on the Linux desktop, you actually have to go in and, and tick some boxes saying like, give me the compatibility layer, yada, yada, yada. In this one, they've got the Steam Deck verified games and then they've got the playable system and it, it'll actually tell you if it's marked playable, what does that mean? Like, font is too small or maybe you need to pop up the keyboard or things of that nature 
and I found it to be a really good experience, especially when we got a dock and we dropped the dock on the TV in our bedroom. And my wife and I pulled out a couple of controllers and we were playing Trine together. We haven't played Trine in years. It's a, it's a game where there are three characters, a knight, a wizard, and a thief. And you basically solve various types of puzzles and there are bad guys. Um, and it's a, it's a absolutely gorgeous game. And so it was one of those things where we dropped it in the dock and we were playing the night before and then it was nice and the kids wanted to be out in the backyard. So we grabbed our steam decks and we went out and sat on the porch while we were kind of watching the kids. Um, And the seamlessness of the deck and a dock plugged into the the TV and just how well it works. I think that they're really on to something more than the Nintendo Switch, which is one of those things where Nintendo has an iron grip on things, whereas mm-hmm. Valve is like, here's your entire category. You can take our recommendations, whether it's the you know the verified or not, and then try and play it. Like, my wife went and played one that wasn't verified, mm-hmm. and it worked perfectly fine. And so it's one of those things where, because it's Linux, you can install Proton GE, which is um, a fork of Proton that has a bunch of community fixes in it, which I've found to be very advantageous. So there's there's a ton of stuff that you can do. Um, I replaced the opening video of mine. So mine is now somebody made some fan stuff of uh, Futurama. So mm-hmm. that the Futurama ship flies through the word Steam, Steam Deck. Um, <laughs> that, that's, <laughs> that's how awesome. my Steam Deck starts. Yeah. So there's been some fun hackery on that. And uh, overall, I've been, I've been really impressed. I think that they're onto something. And... It's been seamless. Like, give it to my wife. There's been no, like, how do I do whatever? It's just she just picks it up and she goes. Would you say that it's a better experience than a PC? And I ask you this with great uh, curiosity because I know that, you know, you're a desktop guy and I'm kind of a laptop guy. Um, So what do you think going to a handheld device? Are you like, oh, man, I wish I had my desktop? Or is it like, man, this is perfectly usable? I... I think that I honestly think that they they hit the sweet spot. I don't know what they did with that graphics card in there, but <laughs> no, really, like whatever they did, um, it has been sufficient. Like, so I'm I'm not necessarily playing the most like modern warfare or anything like that, but I am playing like Shadow of War and Lord of the Rings and and like they were AAA titles a couple of years ago, and this thing like it plays it like a champ. Like I have no idea that I'm not playing on my desktop except for the loading times because we're playing off of the SD card as opposed to the NVMe that I have in my desktop. So, I mean, take that for what it is. But that compromise gets me... I get six, seven, eight hours worth of battery life depending on the types of games that I'm playing. Wow. I love it. Yeah. That's great. It's really good. Ohio Linux Fest is a grassroots uh, conference for GNU Linux open source software and the free software community. It was started originally in 2003 uh, from a a lug, from an area lug, and has steadily grown since then. And they're back this year. It took took some time off for, uh, you know, COVID and and, and that sort of thing. Um, But they're back. And so it's going to be held December uh, 2nd and 3rd. It'll be uh, in Ohio and I don't have the hotel in front of me, but you can find out more at olfconference.org. And Steve, this is a conference that you prioritize attending each year. Tell me a little bit about what you like about it. Well, it's it's nice that it's a grassroots. Honestly, the first thing that drew me was that uh, as sad as it was, driving eight hours was the closest uh, Linux conference that I could get to on, on any kind of reasonable way. So I've been going there for quite 
quite some number of years, even though I don't necessarily make it every year. Um, shameless self-plug, I am doing a couple of the training sessions on Friday and Saturday instead of uh, giving talks, which I normally do. But the the folks over there, they've been Vance and, and Beth and a bunch of the other people have been there a long time just uh, volunteering. And uh, I appreciate the stuff that they do. And I thought I'd, I'd shed some love their way. They do a lot of work to put this on for the community largely free. And so, uh, you know, I wanted to say thank you and that I, I appreciate an excuse to, to end up in Columbus with a bunch of people that I see from time to time. Very, very cool, Steve. That's absolutely excellent. So again, it'll be December uh, 2nd and 3rd. It'll be at the Hilton in Columbus downtown at Columbus, Ohio. So we would invite you to, uh, to to join Ohio there. Unfortunately, I won't be able to make it this year, but you will hear from people like John Mad Dog Hall. I think he's planning on being there. And obviously, Steve will be there and a bunch of other really great name speakers. Been to Ohio in the past. I really like it. Any of the community-based conferences in where they are focused on the end users and not so much the, the corporate stuff, I think is really fantastic and does a really good job, both for people that have no experience in Linux and want to get involved in the Linux community, as well as people who... Uh, are experts and just want to not be the smartest person in the room. That's kind of the advantage of a Linux conference. Music in our ears, it means we're out of time. Before we take off, uh, I want to invite you to join me every weekday, 9 to noon, knoxradio.com. We'll talk life, lifestyle issues, uh, current events, and news. Uh, that airs every weekday from 9 to noon. It's also available as a podcast, criticalthought.show. We finally got everything set up, so you'll start to see episodes drop there. Uh, you can get the show notes for this show, podcast.asknoahshow.com. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Colonel Linux. He's at Linux Ovens. The show at Ask Noah Show. We in invite you to join the show live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. We'll be back next week. Have a good week. Have a good week.